Welcome to Wild West Podcast, a time in early Kansas history when forts were the sentinels along the Santa Fe Trail to protect onward travelers of a westward expansion. In this new series entitled Fort Dodge, the Sentinel to the Cimarron, we will explore the historical timeline of the forts along the Arkansas River Valley. In today's podcast, we will bring you the story of early forts along the Arkansas River to include Fort Mann, established in 1846, and Fort Atkinson, established in 1850. The show will first present a historical narrative. Shortly after that, we will invite a special guest, Deb Goodrich, to join us in an in-depth discussion of some stories related to the early forts along the Arkansas River. The assistance rendered by Fort Dodge to the expanding frontier was significant, yet it has been largely overlooked in the process of shaping the pattern of American military history. The men of the post were involved as scouts and campaigned almost continuously from 1865 until 1878. Weary cavalrymen often found that they had ridden more than 1,500 miles during a single season while guarding the Kansas frontier. From 1867 until 1874, the fort was involved in several major campaigns to eliminate the menace of Indian depredations on the plains. Although Fort Dodge was a part of the series of frontier forts that made the settlement of the West possible, its historical significance has never been comprehensively evaluated. Feasibility studies with similar histories, like Fort Scott, Larned, and Leavenworth, are subject to federal preservation laws, which require that buildings be evaluated for National Register eligibility and that projects be reviewed to determine their impacts on historic properties. But for various reasons, the historic preservation movement left Fort Dodge, a significant frontier fort, behind. The history of Fort Dodge is closely espoused to both the frontier experience of Kansas and the growing commercial roads which crossed that state to serve the entire nation. The commercial frontier stretched and spanned the prairies of Kansas by 1821, approximately three decades before the arrival of the settlers' frontier. Captain William Becknell's successful expedition in 1821 demonstrated the feasibility of crossing the plains to trade with Mexico. As a result, the volume of goods carried by pack mules and wagon train grew dramatically during the years which followed Becknell's initial venture. By 1826, the trade had become reciprocal as enterprising Mexican merchants, following the queue of their American counterparts along the Missouri River, sought to share in the newly discovered wealth of prairie commerce. As the returns from these capitalistic ventures grew, notable companies like Russell, Majors, and Waddell soon sent thousands of wagons onto the plains each year. But unfortunately, thieves and Indians soon appeared to challenge the wagon master for the goods he carried, and violence became a constant companion of the emerging commercial frontier. The commercial enterprise of goods traveling along the Santa Fe Trail drew many attacks from malicious marauders. The continued success of their attacks forced the patrons of the trains to petition the government for protection. Of the two alternatives available to the military for providing some measure of protection along the trail, that of sending detachments of troops down the trail on punitive expeditions from military posts near the eastern terminus of the route, 
or of establishing minor military posts, manned by small detachments, at strategic points along the entire way. Neither proved to be entirely satisfactory. Marauding bands of Indians retired before the challenge of a superior force, usually choosing to attack public trains or small military units rather than risk the chance of a significant defeat. As soon as a sizable military force had withdrawn in frustration, the Indians were free to continue their attacks on less dangerous prey. Perhaps the most vulnerable location for attacks on trains moving over the Santa Fe Trail was at the Cimarron Crossing of the Arkansas River. This site had initially served as a favorite rendezvous point for mountain trappers after the Arkansas River west of the Great Bend had become a portion of the United States' western international boundary with Spain by the provisions of the adams onis Treaty of 1819. As a result, the Cimarron soon became a sizable camping and trading ground, which was used various times by mountain men, traders, wagon trains, military detachments, and Indians. Wagon trains usually arrested for several days at the Cimarron before continuing along the trail. Indians, drawn to the campsites to trade and beg, often attacked these trains during the fording when they were most vulnerable. Even significant, well-armed trains could be overrun if the attack was timed to fall on the travelers while the river's waters split their numbers. Fort Mann, established in 1846 as a quartermaster's station rather than a troop base, was used by some volunteer troops during 1847 and 1848. In April of 1847, 40 Teamsters under Captain Daniel P. Mann, a master Teamster, began construction of the post. The post was named Fort Mann after him. By late May, construction was completed. The fort consisted of four flat-roofed buildings laid out in a rectangle with large courtyard at the center. The buildings were positioned so the stockade wall on the opposite side of the gate was on the north side of the fort. The buildings, constructed of wood and adobe, were connected by four sections of wooden stockade walls at angles, giving the post an octagonal shape. At the center of one of the stockade walls was a gate one foot thick. The gate opened at its center. Loopholes were cut into the stockade walls to allow those inside to shoot outside in case of an attack. A six-pounder cannon, sometimes called a mountain howitzer, was mounted on wheels. Adobe breastworks were built on the roof of both the Northwest Building and the Southeast Building. In response to the growing frequency of Indian attacks, Fort Mann, in reality a way station, was established near an unsafe point of the Cimarron in 1845. Nevertheless, the military significance of the post was considered modest. The fortifications of the post consisted of nothing more than four log houses set in a square and connected by log walls 20 feet high and 60 feet long. Thus, the log houses of Fort Mann could garrison only a small detachment of troops. However, travelers along the route welcomed the opportunity to rest, repair their equipment, and trade tired or disabled draft animals for rested stock previously exchanged by an earlier train without the threat of attack on the open prairie. The volume of goods passing Fort Mann increased dramatically during the Mexican War as the military wrestled with the problem of supplying large armies in the field over several thousand miles of challenging terrain. Finally, during 1848, the war with Mexico ended. The sharp reduction in government trains that accompanied peace led to Fort Mann's abandonment in 1850, 
when a new post, Fort Atkinson, was established six miles downstream. The original Fort Atkinson was established on August 8, 1850, by the U.S. Army to prevent Indians in the area from attacking travelers on the Santa Fe Trail. Even before this, a site nearby was occupied in July 1850 by Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Vose Sumner. Fort Atkinson, 1850-1854, was the first regular Army post on the Santa Fe Trail in the heart of the Indian Country, located some six or eight miles up the river from the current site of Dodge City. Camp McKay was established near the middle crossing of the Arkansas River. On September 12, 1850, the soldiers at Camp McKay moved to the new post on the Arkansas River known until June of 1851 when it was named Fort Atkinson. The fort was built of sod, covered with poles, brush, sod, and canvas. The post measured 150 feet on the north side, 355 feet on the east and west sides, and 60 feet on the south side. The officer quarters were along the north wall, and the enlisted barracks were along the west wall. The soldiers quartered there gave it the name Fort Sod, and later Fort Sodom. It was known as Camp McKay until June 25, 1851, when the name was changed to Fort Atkinson. Unlike Fort Mann, which had served the needs of public and commercial trains to a much greater extent than chastising marauding Indians, Fort Atkinson was designed to function primarily as a traditional military installation. Yet the life of this new post was short. The recurrence of Indian attacks on the Santa Fe Trail travelers declined sharply during the following years, and Fort Atkinson was abandoned in 1853. And now, Wild West Podcast proudly presents Deb Goodrich. Hi, Deb Goodrich. Yes. This is Mike King, and I have Brad Smalley with me, and welcome to Wild West Podcast. Thank you for being a part of our show. We really appreciate you being here, and you have so much uh, a, a fabulous background in history in Kansas, and we've been following you, at least I've been following you for a while. And uh, the television programs that you're putting together, the books that you've written. So give us a little bit of background information on yourself and what you're currently working on. Well, I grew up in Virginia. I grew up in southwestern Virginia in Patrick County, which is the home place of J.E.B. Stewart, who gained fame, of course, as the Confederate Cavalry Commander. But most of his adult life was spent in the Kansas Territory in the um, U.S. Army. So, uh, I'm sorry. That's that's correct. And we we did a a, a short story on uh, the Battle of Solomon Fork, uh, which was he was a part of that, or part of the history uh, that has been documented that possibly that Custer was involved in the attack that may have uh, ended Jeb Stewart's life. It, yeah, the the Wolverines, um, yeah, were were part of that battle at Yellow Tavern where where uh, Deb Stewart was mortally wounded. So um, yeah, Custer was indirectly responsible. So 
Yeah, Custer is not real popular in my part of the world, but <laughs> um, I, I went to high school in Stewart that was actually named Jeb Stewart after the uh, um, Civil War was over. And then um, the farm where he was born and raised was owned by my cousins. And it was only, I don't know, a couple of miles uh, from my home. So, yeah, I was intimately acquainted with the the ground where he grew up. And so the the movie that changed my life seriously was the movie Santa Fe Trail with Errol Flynn playing Jeb Stewart. And I can remember watching that as a kid. And, you know, Errol Flynn is playing your hometown boy, and that's about as good as it gets. So <laughs> I You can't go wrong a, with Errol Flynn. That's, that's oh for sure. Oh, man, no kidding. So I was a... Uh, uh, Porter. I started when I was 15 working for the local newspaper in Stewart, and I just kept getting jobs. So I worked for newspapers and radio stations back home and um, would take a college class now and then. But in um, 1992, I decided that I wanted to finish my degree and live somewhere else. So I came to Topeka and went to Washburn as a non-traditional student. And I didn't plan to stay in Kansas. But I was walking through Topeka Cemetery one day because, you know, I'm from the South, so we love dead people. So I was <laughs> walking through the cemetery and stumbled literally over the grave of Cyrus K. Holiday. And the only reason I knew his name was because of that movie. And that's when I realized that all these people had been right here, you know, right where I was standing, John Brown and, and Jeb Stewart. and and later, you know, Custer and Holiday and all these folks. And I was hooked. That was it. I, I was just absolutely hooked. I was already studying the uh, my history degree. The focus was the American West. So I was hooked. I, I've been a Kansan ever since. Well, we are so privileged to have you here today. And, and you just, I mean, uh, the the stories of Kansas uh, and the history of Kansas is so expansive. I mean, we began uh, our journey approximately about three years ago, and we haven't even scratched the surface. Oh, no. I, no, and, you yeah. can't. So you're currently working on a book, right? And you've, and oh, you've written God. several, and you've written several before this. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the venture you're on now and Maybe a little bit about the book that you've written, or some of the books that you've written in the past. I've, I'm I'm really embroiled in two or three very big projects right now. For one, I am the chair of the 200th anniversary of the Santa Fe Trail, and I'm very, very honored to be part of that. And I wasn't chosen because of my expertise. I was chosen because of my big mouth, um, and that has served them well. That's and why we do what we do, too. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> you work with what you've got, you know? So, um, but I, I'm i so fortunate that there's so many people working hard and doing really cool things, and I just get to tell people about it, you know? So that's that's wonderful. And the, um, the 200th commemoration will actually run through 2025. For a couple of reasons, there are significant anniversaries, number one, and number two, COVID has necessarily caused the delay or postponement or cancellation of some of the anniversary events. 
So by running that anniversary into 2025, we can make sure to include all those um, entities and communities that, that really want to be a part of it. The other thing I'm uh, involved in is a docudrama called The Contested Plains, and that is the story of the German family massacre, the um, German family, that being their name, not their nationality, um, were traveling through Kansas in 1874 en route to a new homestead in Colorado when they were attacked by a raiding party of, of Cheyennes led by Medicine Water and Moki, who both had survived Sand Creek and Washita. Um And five of the family members were killed and four were taken captive. So it's one of the most famous stories, one of the most gut-wrenching stories on every level, whether you're talking about the family or the Cheyennes. It's, it's just um, heartbreaking. But we have already started filming. Um, we have um, Ken Spurgeon and I are co-executive producers along with Anita Gallet from the White Deer Land Museum in Pampa, Texas. And we're really, really excited about this project. It's, uh, it's going to be really special. Have and every, then, every reason to be there. I, I got to work with Ken uh, before on uh, the last project uh, that he did about... Uh, 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 home on the range. So we're pretty excited about this new one coming up here too. And Josh Rose, uh, Rosner was in that too, wasn't he? Uh, home yeah. On, on the range. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of us hometown. Home on the range was, uh, he knocked it out of the park. And of course I've been at least tangentially involved in just about everything Ken's done. Um, because I just insert myself. I just won't let him get by without using <laughs> me somehow, but, um, he has yeah. a knack for bringing people like that. He he does he does have an act and he's an award winning filmmaker and just so proud to be partnering with Ken on on anything and so um, yeah the quality of this we started filming a couple of weeks ago and the quality crew and cast and oh my gosh I, I'm just absolutely blown away so I can't wait to come back and and talk to you when that actually. Um, is completed probably um, early next year. So, yeah, that's exciting. Very exciting. We look forward to that. Uh, one of the things that we are currently working on or we have taken on as Wild Wise Podcast is the preservation of Fort Dodge. And uh -huh. um, can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of the preservation of history and why that is so uh, important to future generations. Well, I'm the Derby, Texas historian and residence at the Fort Wallace Museum in Wallace, Kansas. And we don't have anything left of Fort Wallace. When the fort was decommissioned in 1882, the um, buildings were scavenged for building materials. You know, wood and dress stone were really valuable. And that has been, um, that has made it difficult to interpret the story of Fort Wallace in some cases. The, the thing that has made it easier is that we have at least part of the post cemetery. When those posts were decommissioned, the cemeteries were often relocated. So the soldiers were moved, but the civilians and, and the army scouts were left. So even having that cemetery, I can't tell you how important that is, just having 
the stones and uh, we have a marker that the 7th Cavalry and the 3rd Infantry erected in 1867 for their fallen comrades. Just having something that people can touch and see is so meaningful. And we've likened it in projects in the past to a piece of the cross. Everybody wants a piece of the cross. And when you can walk up to a building, when you can stand on the same ground and you know that these important people, these important events happened right here on the very threshold that I'm standing in, it just makes it more real. And I think our goal as historians is to bring it to life, to make it real. And we need every tool we can employ to do that, um, to to bring it home that these people, this is what's so important to me about history. These people that we're talking about were just like us. They didn't know what tomorrow would bring. They were fallible. They were... Um, they were nervous. They had families that they were worried about. They had bills to pay. They had, you know, are we going to be able to make a crop this year? They had all the same concerns, just wearing different clothes or, or different manifestations around them, but the same issues. And I think that's one of the things that is so hard for people to understand. You look at the past. And they're omniscient. You know, they knew it all. Well, no, they didn't. They're just like us. And if we understand that, then it gives us hope in our own struggles. That, yeah, we can find our way, too. And so I I just, I can't overstate the importance of preservation and, and what it means. You know, at Fort Wallace, we've, I think we've done a very good job of using other things to communicate that past. Because we don't have the actual fort, we've we've come up with other things. But when you've got that, oh my goodness, you've got every reason in the world to save it and not let it go. Yeah, I agree with that. Is there is there anything that uh, that you would like to say to the committee members who are currently working on on this project? What what things they might do to encourage public response to? the preservation of Port Dodge? I think one of the things that is so important, and, you know, the fact that there is the soldier's home now, I think is so, so significant. One of the things that impressed me most when I came to Kansas and, you know, began really studying Kansas history, you know, long before Kansas was the Sunflower State, it was the Soldier State. And I don't think we can over emphasize the meaning of that, the soldier state. Very good point. Very good point. Yes. Telling the stories of those soldiers, whether they're our uh, men and women serving now or the ones that were called to duty here in the past, I, I don't think that can be overemphasized. And the fact that we're in the heartland and that we were the soldier state and are the soldier state is so meaningful. I used to consult at Fort Leavenworth on issues of, um, well, on media relations, and then I also helped with staff rights. So going through the Hall of Fame at Fort Leavenworth at the soldiers who have come to Kansas to study their art, and we're not talking about, you know, it's, 
like people outside military often see the military as it's all about training people to kill somebody. It's all about guns. It's all about training people like this. No, it's about training people to defend us, to keep us safe. Yes, it's absolutely and, correct. And that is so, it's vital. It's, it's, there's nothing more crucial to being American than that. And I just, I just can't overstate how important it is to preserve those soldiers' stories and to keep telling them. You know, we don't stop with 150 years ago. We say that, and then we keep telling the stories of our soldiers. Uh, Brad, do you have any questions for I don't believe I do, but okay. I want to wish you uh, all the best of luck uh, working with, with Ken on the docudrama. Very much looking forward to to seeing that come to fruition and uh, hope to run into you again one of these days shortly, Deb. And well, we, I hope so. Yeah, and we would like to uh, invite you back uh, sometime uh, in the new, near future and just kind of catch up, uh, find out how the project's going, how the book's going. And uh, things that you are involved in, we're looking forward to working with you, hearing from you, and we sure appreciate everything that you're doing to preserve history in Kansas, uh, and you're doing a fantastic job, and again, thank you for being part of us today. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. You bet. And we are closing out, and we thank you again.